For this episode, I'm partnering with my favourite CBD brand, Oto. I'm someone who has always really struggled to go to sleep, but then I found Oto's award-winning sleep collection, which has really helped me calm the racing thoughts that keep me up at night. And Oto's CBD sleep drops are a personal favourite. They contain these botanicals such as lavender and butterfly pea flower to help you wind down, while the CBD helps to bring the body back into balance so you can get to sleep more easily and stay asleep. 9 out of 10 customers reported improved sleep, and what I really love is that it's not like a sleeping pill, it's all completely natural so you wake up refreshed. Fear itself listeners can enjoy 10% off all Oto products with their online shop at otocbd.com slash fearitself with the code FEAR10. My name is Pippa Grange and my biggest fear in life is being stuck or being trapped and not having choices. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear, how it limits them, how it motivates them, how they face it, and what you can learn about yourself and the world around you from your fear. I'm very excited to say that my guest this week is Dr. Pippa Grange, one of the world's most influential and sought-after psychologists. Pippa has worked with some of the biggest names in sport and business. She has a reputation for having a significant impact across numerous areas, from helping build resilience, developing good habits, and enabling people to live with less fear. She is widely credited with transforming the mindset of the England football team at the 2018 World Cup. Tottenham and England footballer Deli Ali says, She's amazing. Everyone listens when she talks. And the Duke of Cambridge said, England was a better team with her on board. She has distilled all her knowledge into a wisdom-filled, mould-breaking new book, Fear Less, where Pippa shows us how to face our fears and live more free, fulfilled lives. Hello, Pippa. Hello. Thanks for having me. Pippa, thank you so much for being here and thank you for taking the time and talking to me today. I've just read your book, fear less and I really loved how it's not about being fearless which is actually something I don't believe in but more Mm -hmm. about fearing less would you say that we are all driven by fear yes absolutely um it's a matter of degree so I think that fear is a very natural phenomena in its sort of uh, purest essence Um, and we all have it and we'll all continue to have it and we wouldn't want to be without it. As you say, feel less is different to fearless Um, and um, I'm a big believer in the former, not the latter, um, as as an objective. Um, But it's really a matter of degree and how much control we have of how much room fear takes in our life, how much space it has at our table. And um, my objective with the book and, and in these wonderful conversations is to really help people come, become a little less stuck in the amount of room fear have, has in their life and to work on the real stuff, not the Band-Aid stuff. And at the moment, obviously, with what everyone is going through, fear perhaps is taking up a lot of that space. How How are people supposed to in this time, which is obviously incredibly uncertain, how can they be fear-less? It's a really interesting question. I think that there are 
it's a, a an unusual time and I think there's many examples of people coping brilliantly well. I guess for me, the thing that's on my mind is how to make sure that we don't over adapt to the constant fear stimulus that we're getting. So we're facing something very unusual and very dramatic in the virus and pandemic, but we're also facing a 24-7 news cycle that provokes fear constantly. And one of the things I worry about a little bit through this time is that because we are such adaptive creatures, that we we actually become more fearful than we need to be, that we we restrict ourselves too much and that we um, close down our dreams and desires and our, our goals and we um, kind of just shelter in place literally in our minds um, as well as as physically. And I think that that's a, a real problem for people and uh, uh, we're not sure how to step forward. So what I really hope is that we can be rational about what fear to take on board and how to be smart in our response to that, but rational also in not giving away our joy or our lives to too much fear when that won't actually help us. Mm. Because you are also a culture coach, which is actually something I've never, I've never heard of that before. And as you say, it does feel like almost especially at this time with all the news that we're you know, subjected to is that people almost catch their fear of other people and then it just mm. increases mm. the fear that we're all feeling. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, you know, we absolutely need the facts and we need the um, information um, about what's, you know, what, what we need to be doing and not doing or um, what's the shape of the pandemic and um, what are the realities that are facing us. But I think um, we can get caught up in the difference between headline news and um, real sort of journalism I guess that's that gets down to the the things that we need to know and if we don't turn away from the news cycle here and there it can quickly become overwhelming mm. and you feel like not only are you going to do the wrong thing if you move <laughs> uh, if you connect if you <laughs> try and live life as normal but um you know, that it, that you're putting yourself at grave risk. And I think that, you know, there's a difference between smart action on the back of a fear stimulus like the pandemic um, and losing yourself totally to, to sort of being mm. overly fearful about what's happening. Yeah. And I think that feeling of fear, big or small, can be incredibly overwhelming and it's a very powerful energy, but can also be very difficult to describe with any sort of logic, which is why in this podcast, I ask people to name their fears to sort of get to the, you know, the real root of it. And if we were looking at fear in your story, can you talk a bit about the fear that you had growing up? Yeah, most definitely. Um, the fears I had growing up, I think influence the fears I still ha get triggered by today. So, um, for me, uh, this, as you would have read in the book, it, there was some, uh, complex circumstances as I, as I was an adolescent particularly. Um, and I, I think with hindsight, you know, they, they have a tale for me now in that I um, really fear being stuck in a negative situation or in constrained or kind of trapped, um, whether that's in a relationship or in a circumstance or even in a job. So it has some upsides to it. Um, 
because you know that that means that I don't accept less. You know, I make sure I'm not ever in too much debt, or um, that I haven't made a commitment that I can't keep, so that I can stay fleet of foot and and I, I'm always ready to move. Um, but it also has a downside in um, what that costs me, and perhaps not over my life, not being willing to have made commitments very easily. Um, and, you know, moving away from things a little bit quicker than I should have, um, and being maybe too quick, maybe too quick to move on at times. And I have to be very aware of when I'm triggered into that now and, and discern as a grown up the difference between a choice and a commitment I'm making, even if it's a struggle, um, and, uh, feeling trapped or feeling um, stuck in a negative circumstance. And you encourage people to look at the the source of their their fears with this fear that you have about being um, trapped and restrained. Do you know what that source is? Thinking back across my childhood, you know, um, or I should say my adolescence, my childhood was fine, but my, uh, you know, my adolescence where things got tricky at home, um, that sort of sense of watching my mum not being able to escape from a, um, a rubbish situation of domestic violence or not, or feeling really stuck and trapped and watching and feeling incapable of helping myself. Um, but also kind of stuck in the circumstance, even though I did escape the emotional feeling of that, the psychology of that stayed. Um, and I still can be triggered into that now. So there wasn't sort of one moment. Um, and I think for most of us, it's not that way if it's not sort of a traumatic event, but it's a, um, a lifetime of small, um, nuggets of information that tell us psychologically that things aren't okay and you need to be able to move quickly or you need to be more perfect or you need to, to stay separate, for example, or you need to be superior. All of these ways that we sort of manifest our fears, they don't generally come from one significant event. They generally come from layers and layers of of information and ways that we perceive that information. And they build up sometimes without us even knowing. That's really interesting that you talk about those layers and how our brains are kind of habitual um, molding to think of a certain way or to be frightened of a certain um, thing. And I wonder, I know this is a huge, huge question, but how we remold mm-hmm. our brains to not allow fear to take up so much space. I do think there is kind of root fears that uh, trouble all of us at some level. Um, one of them is is dying, you know, obviously is like a critical fear for all of us. But another one is being abandoned. Um, and in, you know, we're as a mammal, we're the most vulnerable mammal for the longest period of time. Um, so an infant child is born absolutely helpless without a caregiver. We wouldn't survive at all for more than a day or two. Um, and so we're completely dependent on other people. And before we're even born, our fear systems are, are fully developed before anything else, before our ability to understand hardly anything else, we're wired for fear. So there is a, that root fear of being abandoned as we become adults, as we grow up, that kind of transforms into um, you know, uh, modern life fears of being lonely or being rejected or not being good enough, which is sort of the central, the central way that we're experiencing, we're experiencing it now of, am I good enough? Am I enough? Am I worth enough? 
And that's kind of like the modern take on abandonment, you know, that is a, a root instinctive fear in all of our deep unconscious. In terms of how we deal with it, what I talk about in the book is understanding the difference between in the moment fear, which is driving too quickly into a corner and getting that prickling rush of adrenaline up through your legs and your chest where your knees go weak and you need to do something. Um, and which is a very useful thing. We wouldn't want to be without it. The thing about that is not only is it completely natural and it will recur, but it's largely manageable. So there are a whole host of techniques that you can use to get a hold of that kind of fear. Um, you can process them, which might be about using breath work or coming. It's, it's basically all about coming back to the present grounding yourself in right now and what's in front of you, or you can use a distraction technique, um, or you can also just use rationality of, of um, running through the facts in your head, depending on the circumstance and where you're at. So the great news is on that kind of fear, it's useful, it's natural, and often it's manageable. The trickier one, the sneakier one is not good enough fear. And quite often, even in performance, even when we're performing, it feels like in the moment fear, but something more, there's something that's more of a thief is sitting under the surface, a thief of our joy, a thief of our um, uh, potential, a thief of our willingness to expose ourselves, And that's, that's the fear of not being good enough. And so when it comes to that, um, I'm not a believer in techniques per se. My position is that that is something we have to take a deep dive on. Um, and that's kind of all about shifting your perspective. And basically, if you can um, plant your feet on the ground and stay with your fear long enough to see what it actually is, um, you've got half a chance of um, facing it. What's it costing you? Where is it showing up? How does it manifest? And replacing it with something that's much stronger and more useful for you. But that's not done by tomorrow. <laughs> Whereas you can learn mm. to manage your in the moment fear by tomorrow. So it's a real yeah. distinction. I think those not good enough fears, certainly in my experience, can be very damaging to our everyday lives. And, and it's certainly held me back in many ways. Has there been a time in your life where it's held you back? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Many times. Um, I think uh, probably one of the most obvious ones is sort of th from a professional sense through my career has been feeling um, imposter syndrome. So I'm so often in my career the only woman in male-dominated environments, in sports teams. I've worked mostly with men. Um, and quite often as the, the psychologist and the only woman in the environments, I feel like, you know, what am I doing here? And I start, I can, I, particularly earlier in my career, I could start to doubt myself and, um, and, you know, allow fear far too much room and, and get in the way of my actual skill, my ability to do the job. So I really had to learn to right size the fear and trust myself a little bit more and recognize what was happening when it was happening so that I could go, mm. ah, right. Yeah, that's just fear. What will I do with it? And, and in your book, you talk about replacing the fear with something else. Mm which I really liked and found really, really helpful. If we were to take a not good enough fear 
And and for you, for example, when you were, um, you know, working with the England football team, and if that fear came up, what would you replace it with? Well, a go-to across my life has been laughter and humour. So, mm-hmm. you know, to Good be a- one. <laughs> <laughs> always useful. Um, but to be able to connect with people that I, um, you know, are my sort of my own inner circle and my trusted people and ring, or, you know, ring them even in the midst of sort of, you know, unusual circumstances and just have a giggle. The humility to laugh at yourself in those moments, I think, is really important. So that's been a, a really important tonic for me. But there's also um, probably the main thing for me has been the um, willingness to be vulnerable enough to really connect with people. So even in those circumstances, when I've when I've been able to sort of say, okay, well, so what? I'm the only woman. How will I relate to other people on a really human level? How can I connect? You know, how can I bring some closeness or um, humanness into the relationship that takes it to a different level? Um, and that absolutely is um, fail safe for me to to be able to sort of relate differently and connect differently. And so you're, you're actually not performing. You're just you relating as you and you move away from the performance and, and I'm just able to be Pip. So the truer I am, the easier it gets. When you got that job for the England team, is that the is that the attitude that you took on? Absolutely. You know, even thinking about taking a job like that where um, most people would say, well, you're mad. That's the undoable job. That's, you know, the theatre of doom. Um, But for me, there was nothing to lose because I felt that, um, well, I'll just show up with whatever I have to offer and trust it and trust myself and the outcome will be the outcome. And I think that that's not only confidence building, it's um, it's very freeing that the whole the opposite of fear, in my view, is mental freedom. So I was able to go into that job with mental freedom. Uh, You know, my expectations were that I would do what I could and that would be enough. I would be enough. I love that, that the opposite of fear is mental freedom. Mm. I think that's wonderful, which is a place that everyone wants to get to, yeah. don't they? Yeah, definitely. I notice that people um, try so hard to have less fear that they almost become perfectionistic about having less fear. That becomes the next thing on the to-do list, the next kind of manifestation of perfectionism. And it's so important to remember that it will pop up. It's completely natural. And as long as you can trust yourself that you have the resources and you have some ways of replacing it and come back and and go through the process again, you know, you don't have to be perfect at living with less fear all the time either. So we're all flawed. (laughs) We are definitely. Um, you, You also write about this as well, that there's a lot of shame behind this idea of fear and makes us weak. It's actually just very human. Mm-hmm. And I'd love you to talk about that link between fear and shame and how there is so much shame around. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked this because it's, it's such a critical point. Um, as we've been saying, fear is natural. We're born wired for it and it's there before anything else for us, before we can reason, before language, anything else. Shame, however, is a cultural gift. (laughs) We're not born with shame. We learn it. 
it's cultural, but it is probably the weightiest and heaviest of all of the emotions, maybe the ugliest of all of the emotions. For me, I think so. I think it's the most damaging. When a culture rakes up shame and shames other people constantly, it incites all of us to be a little bit more fearful. It gives more room to fear. So if we're talking about um, a community that we belong to, whether it's a social community or a workplace or even a family, um, a group that we belong to, and if shame is a central cultural aspect of that, we can quickly want to hide. We can quickly want to withdraw. Um, And it's a very toxic thing in an environment. So for me, um, fear is kind of a, you know, is a closely linked with it, but fear is the natural part that is, you know, I wouldn't go far so far as calling it a friend, but it's certainly something that we can live with and manage. And, um, you know, it, it has upsides. Shame has no upside. There is nothing to be gained from shame. It's damaging at every level. And sometimes, you know, even with children, we see people shame them into behaving well. And I think that's such a cost to that. You know, we see it in jokes and banter that go too far, mocking. And there's such a dreadful cost to emotional well-being and particularly to mental freedom. It also it doesn't leave any room for mistakes or failure, right. which again, failure is something so important, I feel, for our growth. Yeah. And again, is very a very human experience. Yeah. Even the maths suggests that we'll fail more often than succeed. <laughs> it's crazy that, we, yeah. that we're so uptight about it, really. It's like, so it's the most natural thing in the world. If, you know, if, it, if the child's learning to take steps, they're going to fail. Same with us f- through all mm-hmm. of life. And have you come across that in when you work with um, professional athletes? Because that you know a lot of them are very much in the public eye. They have this huge fan base, especially footballers, and that really feels like there is not a lot of room for them to make mistakes. Especially, you know, some of these guys are so young. Yeah. So have you come across that? Absolutely. I've worked with pro sport for more than 20 years and I've seen it many, many times, which is kind of one of the things that prompted me to write the book, you know, that there's, you can look at somebody and from the outside, they look like they're, they have all the trappings of success and winning. Um, but inside they feel fearful and empty. Um, they, they can't attach to the joy that comes with the success. They can't be present for it even. And, and I think that that's a terrible um, loss and it doesn't have to be that way. So, yes, absolutely, I've seen it many times. And if you think about it, there's two things with this. One is that we're, we're wired for fear. We have about 60,000 thoughts a day and the majority of them will be negative and repetitive. So we have to intervene. We have to We have to boss it, as I say in the book. We have to take charge. But the other thing is that a performer, especially in elite sport or, you know, in your own profession, the idea of failing means failing in full public view. So, you know, you have to have a sense of mental freedom to even get out there and do it. Um, But you also have to have a sense of worth that isn't predicated on the outcome. So whatever the scoreboard says, that doesn't affect your worth as a human being. And that's the gigantic shift 
um, that, you know, we can make um, when we can kind of really get a, a, um, our heads around fear and understand how it shows mm. up in our life. Yeah, and actually, when I was reading your book, it's almost easy to understand intellectually, but it's it's really, I think, to really feel that, mm. I think is perhaps where the challenge is. Absolutely. Mostly it's about daring to just be who you are and finding joy in that rather than trying to be something else or add something else. But it takes courage, it takes vulnerability, and it takes time. Fear is uncomfortable. We want to move away from it quickly and fix it, but we really can't fix not good enough fear quickly. And I, I guess my objective is to kind of walk a little way with somebody who's who's trying to do that and encourage them that it it's okay. It is a journey, but here's some ways to start that journey. And even while you're on the journey is going to feel better than staying where you were. And Pippa, I'd love to talk about your work with the England football team because I, I have so many questions. It must've been so fascinating. Um, at the time said that you made the England team fearless. What was your approach? Because professional sports people are told to think of logic, not emotion. How do you feel about that? Because do you think we need to tie these two together? Whenever I work with um, a, a professional team, there's two layers. There's the, um, there's, the, there's the stuff that is logic, not emotion, which basically means don't get overrun by emotion when you're in the pressure moment. But if underneath there is a sense of shame or a sense of not being good enough or that if you fail, you will be unlovable and rejected in some way, then that work must happen alongside or um, it will be futile because the, you know, our emotion is much, much stronger than our reason. So if somebody knows mm. how to take a free throw or um, make a putt in golf, um, they know exactly what to do in the moment. That will take them so far, but it, it will still steal that fear will still steal their joy. And for me, that's not winning deeply enough. So yes, always, um, if I'm working with a team where shame or fear is a factor, I will work on both levels. So if we were to look at penalty shootouts, which England had a, a long history of being knocked out in tournaments on penalty shootouts, uh, for me, when I watch that, it looks like the most terrifying <laughs> situation psychologically <laughs> you could be in, <laughs> one of them. And well, obviously there was a shift because the, the, the England team won. What was your role that you played in in that when in 2018 when they when they did win? I think that such an important part of any of that kind of work is to make sure that there's enough love in the room. So you know, um, as a psychologist, people uh, might raise their eyebrows that I'm talking about love and soul and things like this. But I so fundamentally believe that they're critical. Um, that you know, um, somebody feels like if I miss that shot, I will still be loved. You know, I, I'm not going to be uh, back to what I was saying earlier. I'm not going to be cast out and abandoned, even if the um, the press the next day is awful. My key relationships, um, uh, you know, it let me know that I will still be cared for, worth something, and loved. And I think that would be the same for all of us in a, a sort of a high performance moment. And it's only that that allows you to actually take the step and and use a technique that that. Um, gets you through the moment or, or that um, allows sufficient mental freedom for you to be out there and take the risk in the first place. People teach you how to cope 
but don't teach you how to be mentally free. Um, and it's different. Mm. It's different. So, so Very. you know, it's, um, and you can't control what somebody else thinks of it. You can't control anything other than your performance and your sense of worth in the moment, you know, which is informed by all the people who love you and all of the work that you've done up to that point. And with the England team, do you think that it was more about the not good enough fears? Do you feel that's the, the main driving fear? I, I feel like for performers of all kinds who dare to put their talents out on show for everybody, managing the technical aspects of performing in the moment is way easier than managing that not good enough fear. If if you didn't feel there would be a consequence for missing, if you didn't feel there would be a consequence, you know, for stuffing up a a performance on stage, you know, it, it wouldn't be quite the challenge that it is. But you need to feel that you'd survive through it. <laughs> you know, that you psychologically you'd survive it and it would be okay and it would be you might be disappointed, but it wouldn't detract from who you were at a, a fundamental level. I really feel that that's so central in any athlete or any performer. I've worked with musicians and uh, singers who, you know, it's sometimes they have absolutely dreadful fear before they go out. And it's it almost becomes part of their preparation. I think there's a story in the book that talks about a young lawyer who, before she would go to trial, um, she was just absolutely anxious and horrified and she would go through this whole process but she actually didn't want to let go of the process because it was part of her preparing and getting rid of all the things that she thought might come up for her on the day and then there would come a point before her performance that she'd she'd um okay that's it that's the end of that i have two more hours to stress about this and then i've i've got to be free and so she developed a process where she could actually put a full stop and give herself the mental freedom, which meant she would then go into preparing, preparing her mind and rehearsing. But she was, she didn't allow herself to be ambushed or interrupted once she'd got past her stress deadline, which was such an interesting technique that she, she didn't try to squash everything she felt. She just allowed herself a time frame in which to do it. And I think people can take that, can't they, into a situation where they're doing a presentation or an interview you know, in my case, an audition, going on stage. Yeah, those feelings can be so big mm -hmm. of nerves yeah. and and fear. What do you do to prepare for that? How do you how do you manage your nerves in those circumstances? Well, actually, when you when you were talking about this 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 person, I was thinking, what do I do when I and I was thinking about the time when I did a did a one woman play, and it was absolutely terrifying. And I remember <laughs> the first night. There wasn't anything I could do. I couldn't squash the fear because it was just very much there. And it might sound strange, but I think when I went out the first night, I sort of just used used the fear. Mm -hmm. And then I just carried on doing that every night. And actually, if I'm honest, the times when I felt less nervous, you know, the evenings when for some reason the nerves weren't as strong, 
I don't think I did my best performance, right. which I suppose is the good aspect of fear, isn't it? That's, if there is a good aspect yeah, of fear. There, there, there is um, because it's an emotional energy. Uh, so, you know, it's um, you can channel it. Um, don't forget that when you have that dump of fear, you also have, you know, a whole dump of adrenaline or cortisol that goes with it. And sometimes that can lift our performance. So it, there's a distinction I would make for you here, which is, you know, you can absolutely perform while you're terrified. My um, objective, I guess, would be that you can enjoy it <laughs> as well. I can think of many performers who have spent their whole life feeling exactly like that, but they weren't really present um, in their lives and in their performances. They didn't really feel the deep joy of those achievements. It was like relief and then, oh my God, here we go again, kind of thing. And it was just a repetition rather than being truly able to absorb and let your success and your performance and your achievements sink into your bones. And I think a lot of us go through life just kind of getting through and coping and using that adrenal fear in that way. And I would like us to switch over to saying, okay, that I have fear energy, it's in my body. Okay, I want to also leave some space for winning, for the feeling of winning for the feeling of success. So how might I make my fear slightly less intrusive or take up slightly less elbow room and give me some other psychological space, some other mental freedom so I can feel other things? This whole podcast, every time I do an interview, I get very nervous and I, you know, fearful, but it's because to me, these conversations really matter. Yes. Um, I nearly so nearly didn't do this podcast and project because of my fear. And actually, what a shame, what a shame mm. that would have been mm. and how much I would be missing out on. Yeah, I love that distinction, you know, but, and, and when I hear that, I um, what I see is that you moved to purpose, right? So when you're doing something like this, that you have all of that adrenal feeling of fear and oh, here we go again and nerves before you get on, you know how to handle that so you can perform. But also the shift to purpose is recognizing what you're, what, what you're serving when, when you're doing this. So however many people are listening to a conversation that you're having and feeling some relief themselves or feeling seen, witnessed, heard um, in their own fears. You know, you're, you have a purpose that's beyond just the performance. So that's where you actually move to winning deep. Um, and I think that that's one of the essential shifts that we can make. You know, we, you do it because it means something. You do it because there's a love in it. And this, and usually when it comes to purpose, it's for somebody else or it's, it's beyond yourself, at least. Something that's had such an impact on your life and you're willing to, you know, um, be vulnerable enough and brave enough to share that offers something purposeful for others. And, and that's one of the distinctions that lets us all be brave. Yeah. And actually the fear doesn't mean that feeling of fear doesn't mean you shouldn't do something, which often I have mistaken that fear with. Fear is ubiquitous. We all will feel it to some degree about something or other. But even the bravest looking person might be really afraid in a relationship. There's so many mm. ways that fear can manifest. And I think accepting its, its normalness and knowing that it shows up in two different ways and you, one's a deep dive and one is something that you can manage in the moment, then, you know, we, we get a little bit further into sort of 
um, not having so much of our inner joy blocked. And and that's the point. Yeah. Mm. And I think, you know, just, just going back a, a bit to this idea of winning, I think we are live in a culture that's sort of obsessed with winning. And, you know, you say that actually that idea is very, very unhealthy. But I wanted to ask when you work with a, with say a football player and their whole, that's their job is to try and win. How do you teach that? I mean, I think it is in all of us in different ways. You know, our school system well, yeah. ingrains it in us that, you know, you have to have this grade to be good enough um, that, you, you know, if you don't, if you don't pass, you don't move forward. We have these messages all through our life, but you're right. Some, some athletes have, is a really stark <laughs> description of whether they made it or not on the scoreboard. And that, that makes it very tricky. But I think that the answer is in, um, you know, the distinction I make between winning shallow, uh, which is kind of chasing silverware and results, whether they're, you know, in the stock market or the, um, you know, the boardroom or the, on the football pitch and winning deep, which is being able to experience the joy that goes with your wins, um, is, is that's where it comes to. So, if an athlete is continually winning on the scoreboard but feeling empty, feeling nothing, lacking meaning, feeling flat, then there's room. There's room for the conversation. Mm. I do feel that our culture is far too skewed to not – it's not just about winning, but it's what we mean by winning. Because in our culture at the moment, winning means – dominating, beating somebody else, somebody else is a loser, um, conquest, uh, you know, unassailable, uh, untouchable. And I think that those things are lonely um, if, unless you've learned how to win deep. That means relationship, connectedness, meaning, purpose, um, joy, grace, all of those things that we kind of we edge out. And I challenge people, mm. you know, through the book to say, what if you spent the next year deepening or broadening rather than progressing upwards? How about that? You know, that would be mm -hmm. less state, less status and a bit more soul. And I think that um, those moments where we get to reflect like that and take a choice in favor of life, vote in favor of life and in favor of ourselves. And, you know, that's the richness, that's the, the zest of life. And I think that we all yeah. benefit enormously from that. Mm, comes back to what you were saying before about love um, and how love, you know, without sounding airy-fairy at all, but love does actually win and love is the, Absolutely. Is the answer. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and actually coming from you saying that, who is, you know, a psychologist and has years of experience, to say that is really, is really wonderful and has, I think, a lot of weight to it. Mm. I've been really humbled and surprised by how many people have in my conversations through this whole process of writing and interviewing and, um, you know, the various conversations since the publication of the book of how new people have in some way wanted permission for that, have wanted permission that love can be the point or that, you know, um, that we don't need to apologize for something being airy fairy if it's not hardcore winning and scoreboard success. And, you know, we feel a little bit like we might be shushed or shamed for being too fluffy on those things. But at the end of the day, um, it's actually the essence of what we're all about is 
the point is relationships. The point is joy and love. And, you know, mm. if we squeeze those things out of our lives too much, then comes emptiness. Yeah. And Pippa, I am doing, um, in this series, I'm doing a couple of episodes called Love Itself. Wonderful. Um, and I, where I ask people what they believe love is, and I know it is a massive question, but could I ask you what you believe love to be? Mm. I think for me, love is being able to show up or have somebody in my presence show up totally as themselves. I don't remember who the quote was from, but that that uh, the quote that we're all just a bunch of flaws stitched together with good intentions. And for me, love is where we can um, allow each other to be that. You know, it's where you can just actually drop all of the pretense, drop all of the masks and just be who you are. That feels like love mm. to me. Yeah. Gosh, Pepper, I feel a bit, um, well, very moved by that. And I just really believe that strongly as well. Mm. So thank you so much for sharing that. You're so welcome. So I end with these three questions, which I'd love you to answer. What is the place you go to when you're feeling afraid? And that could be in your imagination or um, a literal physical place. For me, it's a literal physical place. I, I live in a very remote area in a national park in the forest, and I just find such solace in being in nature. Um, if I'm surrounded by huge, tall trees and in, in the middle of the forest, I, I somehow feel a very different sense of perspective on whatever small thing is troubling me. Um, and, you know, um, the the same kind of feeling if you, if you, um, look up at night and just recognize how <laughs> tiny you are and how tiny this little moment in geological time is that you're experiencing. So perspective helps me a lot and nature helps me have perspective. So yeah, there, it's a literal place for me. And what's the song or piece of music that you listen to in a bad moment or a fearful moment? Hmm. I would probably listen to Erica Badu <laughs> in a mm-hmm. in a, a moment where I felt fearful. Um, that you know, I I love her music. I love the rhythm of it, and she's always got something sassy to say. And um, if I listen to that, uh, or maybe the Roots as well, uh, um, full volume, listening to that in the car or you know at home, it's it, it is really a, a natural mood enhancer. <laughs> And what would you do if you were free of fear? Well, if I had so little fear at my table that I could do anything, I would probably continue down this path, actually. You know, this is my first book in this genre. And, you know, I, it was a big step to to um, pick up the pen, so to speak, and to write and to think, do I have anything that's valuable to offer? And I've been so thrilled with it. But I think for me to be really fearless, I would continue to engage in these conversations and see if we can rehuman a little bit and have, you know, Mm. have as many people as possible just connect to the idea that love is indeed stronger than fear. Pippa, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Your book Fearless is out now. And uh, for the listeners, I have read it and I really, really cannot recommend it more. It has helped me 
in so many different ways. So please do buy a copy. And Pippa, thank you so much for coming on Fear Itself. This really has been truly just a, a gift. So thank you. I'm really thrilled. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Fear Itself. And I hope it was as interesting and as useful to you as it was for me. It would mean the world to me if you could rate and subscribe and maybe even share it with a friend so that other people can hear about us. Join me next week where I will be speaking to another wonderfully inspiring guest. Until then, take care.